you have your Bibles, you can open them to Philippians 1. I will also have the text on the screen. Our scripture reading will be Philippians 1, 1 through 14, and then we're going to skip to the end of the chapter and read the last three verses. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all God's holy people in Christ Jesus at Philippi, together with the overseers and deacons, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank God every time I remember you. In all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now, being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. It is right for me to feel this way about all of you. Since I have you in my heart, and whether I am in chains or defending and confirming the gospel, all of you share in God's grace with me. God can testify how I long for you, or long for all of you with the affection of Christ Jesus. And this is my prayer, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight, so that you may be able to discern what is best and may be able to appear and blameless for the day of Christ. Filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ, to the glory and praise of God. Now I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me has actually served to advance the gospel. As a result, it has become clear throughout the whole palace guard and to everyone else that I am in chains for Christ. And because of my chains, most of the brothers and sisters have become confident in the Lord and dare all the more to proclaim the gospel without fear. Now we're skipping ahead here to Philippians verse 27. What happens, conduct yourself Conduct yourselves in a matter worthy of the gospel of Christ. Then whether I come and see you or only hear about you in my absence, I will know that you stand firm in the one spirit, striving together as one for the faith of the gospel. Without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you, this is a sign to them that they will be destroyed, but that you will be saved, and that by God. For it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for him, since you are going through the same struggle you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. The word of God. I'm assuming most of you in this room have an email address. Um, you ever think about just the magic of email? Like you, you push buttons that somehow send a message to your screen that makes words, and then you send it, and my computer makes a little whooshing sound, it's like whoo. And somehow it just magically appears through the air to someone's home. Imagine trying to explain that to someone who lived in the first century. It'd be pretty difficult, right? And not only that, um, before email, there was this thing called mail. It's like, it's like email, but you drop the E, right? So it's just, just straight up mail. And you, it's still kind of magic. You write down, handwrite letters, or you type up letters, you put them in a little envelope, stick them in a magic box, and somehow, I, like, I do not understand how it works, but that letter gets to someone else's home, and it happens like really fast. Uh, the other day I ordered something off of Amazon, and that box came to our door like in 24 hours. I have no idea how it works, but it's amazing. Letter writing has been something that has been happening. It's been a miracle that has been happening uh, for a very long time. And one of the most important things um, that I think it's, it's for us to understand the book of Philippians is to understand that it is indeed a letter. 
And in that time when you would write a letter, it would be in fact handwritten, that letter would then be taken by a person a long distance to whoever it is that you were trying to get that letter to. The book of Philippians is a letter. I call it a book. It's not actually a book. It's, it's a letter. It's not a sermon. It's not a systematic theology, but a specific letter to a specific audience written by a man named Paul and the church in the city of Philippi right in the middle of the first century. We don't know for sure. We think it's around 61 or 62 AD. And at first glance, it seems just like any other ancient letter. It starts off, if, if you remember, as I was reading, with a name and an address and a greeting. There's a prayer for health. And the thing about Paul, and we're going to learn this as we go, is that Paul was a very intelligent and educated person. And in the Greco-Roman world, one of the things, when you go through that kind of education, you become educated in the way of rhetoric. And if, stay with me for a second, because this is really important to understanding these first few verses. But what rhetoric was... In the ancient world, it was essentially the art of speaking with an emphasis on persuasion. So it was a way to communicate to people in a way that would get them on your side. You may say a politician has very good rhetoric because they can speak and convince you of something so that you join their cause. In 14 AD, Caesar at the time posed a law that made rhetoric mandatory, meaning everybody had to learn this. And there was a very specific template that you would follow to sort of understand this process. There was only 15% uh, of the empire that could actually read or write, but almost everybody understood rhetoric. And so here's the temple. You start off with this idea of excursio, which is um, you lay out your name, you break the ice, it's sort of the greeting we read in the beginning. You then have the narratio, where you lay out the subject material, and then comes what's called the propizio, which is uh, the English word we get for proposition, okay? And to kind of take it into modern terms, it's, it'd be like a thesis statement. So if you're writing an essay, okay, it's kind of your thesis. What is your main idea that you're arguing or contending for? And so what, the reason I skipped ahead to verses 27 through 30 is that's where we find this propizio. This is the main point. And if we can understand what Paul says in verses 27 to 30, I think we're going to be able to be in great a great way to understand the rest of the book, because here is his main point. So I'm going to read it again. We'll start in verse 27. It says, Whatever happens, conduct yourselves in the manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Then whether I come and see you or only hear about you in my absence, I will know that you stand firm in one spirit, striving together as one for the faith of the gospel. Without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you, this is a sign to them that they will be destroyed, but that you will be saved and that by God. For it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for him. Since you're going from the same struggle you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. Now, to begin, Paul says, whatever happens, okay? So he begins, he says, whatever happens, and then what he says next is the only command that we see in the first uh, chapter, right? So there's 26 verses, there are no commands, and then Paul gives this command. He says, conduct yourselves in a, matter, a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. The phrase conduct yourself in a manner worthy is actually one word in the Greek. It's polytusthene, 
Uh, and it's where we get the English word politics. Okay? You're probably familiar with that word. It, it can be translated to live as good citizens or to take an active part in government and to be involved and to not sit back on the sidelines, but to actually participate. And a large number of scholars actually think the best way to translate verse 27 is this. And I'm going to go ahead and put it on the screen if you do that for me, Joseph. It says, to live as citizens of the gospel of the king. To live as citizens of the gospel of the king. Now, here's the thing. This isn't just an ordinary statement. This is a dangerous statement. This is a statement that could get you thrown into prison. This is a statement that that carried a, a very subversive weight to it, and I'll kind of explain why that is as we go. But to understand the full weight, I think we need to understand the, word, the world of Philippi. So if you would humor me just for a moment um, and take, take a second to close your eyes, and I want you, we're not going to meditate or anything, but I want you to just try to imagine in your brain, try to create a mental picture with me as I describe to you what it would be like to be in Philippi. Okay, so here we go. Take a deep breath. Imagine you're a first century Philippian. It's 62 AD. You live in the north of Greece. It's dry, it's hot, it's Mediterranean climate, a few miles inland. You live in a, a city filled by jam-packed. It's, it's uh, people on top of people, tens of thousands. The streets are crowded. It's shoulder to shoulder. Whenever you try to go anywhere, it's just a crowd of people, and it's a Roman colony. There are Roman soldiers all over. It seems everywhere you look, there are, there are people carrying weapons and soldiers with shields. There's Latin inscriptions on the building, statues of Caesar and Greco-Roman pantheon all over. And in the center, there is this temple to Caesar in the imperial cults. But you don't go there because you don't worship Caesar, but you're a follower of Jesus. Now, it's a Sunday night, probably around 6 p.m. You're on your way over to a wealthy businesswoman's house. Her name is Lydia and you show up in an open-air courtyard, not a building like we're in now, but think open air. There's just a breeze flowing through. There's about 50, 60 people or so who are all followers of Jesus. Your family, your friends, your brothers and sisters from all walks of life. Nobody else, um, nothing else. There, there, there are people that you knew. There, there's a close-knit family. Um, there are people that were rich. There are people that were poor. There were Romans and Greeks and Jews and barbarians. There was a diverse group of people, but you all gathered together every Sunday night to read from the Jewish scriptures. You would pray, you would sing a bit, you'd share a meal with bread and wine. That was a part of the gathering. But this week is special because this week somebody shows up, right, with a letter from the Apostle Paul. And this letter, it's a miracle how it got there. They had to walk miles and miles to bring this specific letter that was written specifically for this community of Jesus followers. And you love Paul. You and Paul go way back. You have a history. And he, this, this, this person stands up, and he reads this letter out loud from start to finish in one sitting. And when it gets to the line that says, live as citizens of the gospel of the king, you begin to fidget and get nervous. You begin to, to have the look behind your shoulder and kind of have this paranoia because you know that statement is dangerous. Paul's already made you really nervous by calling Jesus the king. But this was really dangerous language. And then he calls Jesus Kyrios or the Lord, which is also dangerous language. 
Then he uses the word gospel, not once, but three times. And that scares you to death. And then when he says live as citizens of the gospel of the king, that pushes you over the edge. That was subversive. That was the kind of language that could get you thrown in prison. And you don't want that. It's the kind of language that could have gotten you killed. Okay, you can open your eyes. I hope that helped paint a picture of the seriousness and probably the gravity of hearing those words uh, read aloud to this church. To hear those phrases and what they actually meant, it was something that carried a very unique weight. Now, here's the thing about the scriptures and the thing about the Bible is I believe on one hand, anybody can pick up that book and learn a ton through the guide of the Holy Spirit. We can read it and, and learn and understand. And that is absolutely true. You don't, need to, you don't need to know Greek or Hebrew or go to seminary. You can read the Bible and learn. But at the same time, we have to understand that the scriptures, while they do speak to us, they were not originally written to us. And in this case, in the book of Philippians, in this letter, it was, it was for the Philippians before it was for us. And don't get me wrong. I think everything that Paul says holds true and speaks to our current modern-day situation. Um, but I think you and I would both agree that we don't live in a culture like that of first-century Philippi. We live in 21st century of Wichita, which is pretty great. But there is a chasm, okay? So there's a chasm between that world in which they lived in and the world in which we live now. And so for us to understand the meaning of what Paul's communicating, we have to go back and understand why this was so pertinent to these, this group of people. In order to get to the depth and the layers, and here's my thing. I'm really excited about Philippians. Um, it's one of my favorite epistles, and um, I've spent time uh, in seminary working on it, and I'm, I'm very, very excited. So if I... If, if, I'm, if I finish tonight and you're like, Matt, that was just way over, whatever, like you, need to, you need to bring it down a little bit, let me know. But I'm really excited, and I'm going to, we're going to do the deep, deep dive, especially in these first few weeks, because that sets the table for the rest of the teaching for the rest of the summer. So if we can understand the, his, the history, the theology, it's going to really set the table for where Paul's going to be taking us, and the ending of Philippians is the most epic thing ever. I can't wait. Okay. Uh, here we go. So... Let's start with a question. What does it mean for the Philippians? And then, once we can answer that question, we can dabble a little bit in what does that mean for us today? What it means for you, for the city of Wichita. And to get there, there are four pieces of a puzzle that I kind of want to put together that will sort of paint this picture of what we are going to see. So here we go. The empire. The Roman Empire, if you if you're, um, remember history in high school, you may know some of this, maybe a little bit, but it's good to be reminded of kind of what was happening in this time. So the Roman Empire ruled the world all the way from England to India, right? There was a global military superpower of the day. Its mantra was Pax Romana, which meant Roman peace. But the difference was it wasn't peace by being, quote unquote, peaceful or kind. It was peace by the edge of the sword. Okay, so peace achieved through violence. And the funny thing is, ironically, is that was actually good news to the people. As long as you were on the right side of the sword, this was very good news. And so when we think about empire, we have to think about violence and oppression. And certainly there was that. 
But you have to remember that tens and millions of people who are inside the empire feel safe. They feel secure. They feel like it's the best thing that's ever happened in the world. Some may even say that the empire brought in imperial propaganda as a means of some sort of salvation. It brought unity. It brought an end to the rampant wars all over the Mediterranean. It brought Roman justice and law and order and infrastructure. And it made travel safe. It made an influx of money. Right? They were doing really, really well. In, in one sense, it's almost as if Rome, um, the empire, was like a heaven on earth in Paul's day. Now, that's the first piece of the puzzle. Okay? So you get a picture of Rome, a picture of the empire. Second piece of the puzzle is that of the Caesar. Um, the empire was ruled by a long list of Caesars. In the beginning, Caesar was a king, um, uh, but not much more. But by 61, 62, by the time of the Philippians, Caesar was more than a king. Caesar was considered a god in the eyes of the Romans. The first Caesar, uh, does anybody remember the first Caesar? Anybody? Starts with a J. Julius, yes. All right, this is the very first one. Um, the first Caesar was assassinated, just a little quick history lesson here, adopted by his nephew Octavian, who was next in line for the throne. Um, or his, his adopted nephew, excuse me, Octavian, was next in line on the throne. There was a one-year anniversary of Julius' death at the Olympic Games in Rome. And in Julius' honor, this is kind of a crazy story, a comet shows up. So imagine being at the Olympics and to celebrate the death of, of you know, this, 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 this king, you look up and you see this comet in the sky, which is a very rare occurrence. Um, when that shows up, Octavian says, the, this comet is a sign from the gods that Julius is divine and is ascending to the right hand of Zeus. Think about that for a second. Right? The son of Zeus ascending to the right hand sounds a little bit like a son of a god. It works out really well for him because if your dad is a god, well, that's, that makes you the son of God, right? And they would actually have a coin that had inscriptions around the time uh, of the Philippians. The center was the image of Caesar, okay? And to the right, um, it, says, it says Caesar on the left. It says DVF, which is the abbreviation um, for DV Philios, which is Latin for the son of the divine or the son of God. So there were literal coins that had a picture of Caesar and said son of God. Caesar's favorite word for himself, or name for himself, was that, son of God. Now we have Caesar Nero. This is another Caesar, who we think was actually on the throne during the time that Paul wrote to the Philippians. Nero's favorite name for himself was Lord and Savior. One of the central propaganda statements of the empire was that there is no other name under heaven by which men can be saved other than Caesar. Are you recognizing some of these phrases? But the central propaganda statement that everyone knows over all the empires, Greeks and Latins and Jews, everybody knows that Caesar is Kyrios, which means Caesar is Lord. This is all backdrop to what's happening in the city of Philippi. The empire, okay, you have the empire, you have the colony, or sorry, you have the uh, empire, you have the Caesars. The next um, word we have here is a word that you're all very familiar with, the word gospel, okay? So when we read the word gospel, we, we have an understanding of it. What it means in the, in the Greek is this word euangelion, which essentially uh, 
gets translated as gospel or good news. It's where we get the word evangelical. But long before the Christian word was used uh, by Jesus or Paul or Billy Graham or whoever, it was a Roman word used by Caesar. Whenever Caesar would come to power, he would send out messengers all over the empire. This is a world with no Twitter. There's no Fox News or CNN, whatever one is your thing. There was um, no radio. All these messengers would go to Philippi, Corinth, Jerusalem, Macedonia, all over. They would stand up in a large crowd, and the messengers would get to the center of the city, and they would preach the gospel. Not the gospel that we understand, but the good news. They would announce the good news of a new king coming into power. It was a cause for a celebration. It was a party. It'd kind of be like, in a, in a, to translate it to our American context, if your president of choice won the election and then had an after party and everybody celebrated together, that's kind of what would happen. It'd be an announcement of a new king. So what would happen is people would come under a new king's rule or reign, this good news, and this, would, this sort of paints a picture, and I hope you can kind of see that, like the gospel was a word, and it was something that was used long before the word took on a new meaning when we understand it from the mouth of Jesus or the mouth of Paul. Like these, these things were all part of the culture at the time. It was a royal announcement of a king coming to power. Okay, remember that for later because we're going to come back to that. Um, next piece of the puzzle is this idea of a colony. Okay, so the, the, this idea that they were a colony. What does that mean? Um, Philippi was a Roman colony, and essentially that was a city outside of Rome. Um, Italy is, was an example of, of that. Greece was granted the same exact legal status as Rome. Um, and it meant essentially that residents of Philippi were granted citizenship in the empire, exempt from taxes under Roman law. Okay, So they were not technically in Rome, but they were like part of the Roman uh, benefits. You were part of the country, even though you weren't actually there. Um, it was really a big deal. A colony was Rome away from Rome. Sorry, that was lame. Um, so Philippi was Roman uh, soil by law, even though it wasn't actually literally there. Um, they were Roman citizens, and because of that, Augustus Caesar granted them citizenship, and that, that really created in them a really deep, fierce loyalty. And not only that, but because it was such a military kind of place where, where many people served in wars, you can imagine if you serve in a war, um, you do so out of a love for your country, out of a wanting to serve and to, to give, to sacrifice for your country. That even grows more when you've, when you've served in that way. So there was a fierce loyalty to Rome. And so in imperial language, Caesar granted you this word salvation by uh, giving you a job and a return to your colony, and your job in return, so by Rome giving you citizenship and giving you these things, your job in return and being a part of colony meant you were going to take Roman culture and totally allow it to disseminate in the new place you were. So if you were in Philippi, you were to spread Roman culture everywhere, whether that's music, architecture, art, language, theater, religion, philosophy, everything, you were to bring Rome to Philippi. That was your job to live as citizens and to speak the gospel of Nero or Tiberius or Octavian or whatever Caesar was in power at the time. Okay, 
You have the background information now. You have the pieces of the puzzle coming together. Now I want to go back to verse 27. Paul has that line. He says, to live as citizens of the gospel of the king. So what is that? Is that citizens of Philippi? Is it of Rome? Is it the gospel of Caesar? Or is it, what is this King Jesus? What is Paul up to? What Paul is doing here is he's actually calling the Philippians to an alternative, uh, an alternative empire, a different way to think about reality. He's saying, listen, the empire of Rome is simply a, a fake. It's, it's a parody compared to that of the kingdom of God, which is a reality. It's not Pax Romana. It's not uh, Roman peace. It's grace and peace to you from God, our Father, and Christ Jesus, the King. And so Paul is calling the Philippians to an alternative Lord, in a sense. He says flat out in chapter 2 that Jesus is Lord, which is a very provocative statement because in that time, Jesus isn't, isn't Lord. Who is this Jesus guy? No, Caesar is Lord. So for Paul to say that, he is pressing against this common understanding. And by the way, if Jesus is Lord, what does that make Caesar? Not a Lord, right? He's a pretender. Think of Acts 17, right? For Paul's in Philippi, he goes to Thessalonica for the gospel, gets arrested for the gospel. He's brought in front of the cities, and they read the charge. And Paul and company, they're all defying his decrees. They're saying there's another king, one called Jesus. And when they heard this, what happens? Do you remember the story? The city officials throw them into turmoil. Their people are thrown into prison. Why? Because there was another king, Jesus. There was another Lord, Jesus and another Savior. These words were understood words, but now there is a new king. Now, it's funny because we use these words all the time. We'll say, Jesus is Lord. He's my Lord and Savior, which to a non-believer, someone who's completely outside of the faith, sounds kind of churchy, right? But it's just interesting that these words that we use so often were once in, like radical anti-imperial language that were incredibly subversive to the culture at hand. And over time, it kind of turned into sort of a Christian thing. Um, imagine if I trained my son, Pierce, which I won't do this, but let's just say I did, to when he goes to school. I don't know if they still say the pledge in school. Do they still do that? I did when I was a kid. And imagine that when he stands up, puts his hand over his heart, instead of saying, I pledge allegiance to the flag, and he said, I pledge allegiance to the kingdom of God, and Jesus is my president and my commander-in-chief. Amen. Right? That, that's kind of what's happening here, right? They're, they're supposed to pledge allegiance to Caesar, but instead you're doing something and naming the true reality that is the kingdom of God is at hand. Okay. It's kind of weird as an American analogy because it doesn't really work, but imagine, just for a second, imagine doing something like that in Syria or North Korea or a place where there are maybe dictator-like tyrants. It'd be a much more dangerous thing to say those types of things in those contexts. Now, the problem, I think, in the church today, we misunderstand what Paul's trying to do here because we, we try to put our understanding of these words into Paul's mind. And I think we don't always understand what Paul means by gospel. I think it's actually closer. When we, when, we, when we think of God, we hear the word gospel, we think of good news, but we think, what is the gospel actually? I think that's actually what Paul means when he talks about salvation. Okay, um, 
my, one, of, one of my a legend from Western Seminary is Greg Bashir, Gary Bashir, excuse me. Um, he calls it the standard gospel. If you're familiar with Scott McKnight's work, he calls it the King Jesus gospel, or the Soterian gospel. Um, and basically what that is, it means um, what we understand the gospel. Jesus died on a cross, right? Or he, he lived a perfect life, life that we could not live. And he ended up having to, to, to die on a cross for the forgiveness of our sins. And his righteousness, the perfect life that he lived, is now given to us and that we can have right standing before God if we, if we confess with our mouth and we repent and we have this relationship that will lead to heaven and eternal life. And that is the gospel that we understand and believe. And here's the thing. I believe every word of that. It is good news. But that's not what Paul means in this instance. Right? In this instance, Paul, Paul's referring to something a little bit different. What Paul thinks or talks about when he says gospel, when he's speaking to the gospel of the king, what he means is that it is a royal announcement that Jesus is Lord. There's that dangerous statement again, that Jesus is Lord. Or putting another way, and this is uh, Gary's definition, but he says, the gospel is the good news that the crucified Messiah is now the risen king of the universe. And this is why Paul is put in prison, right? This is why he is thrown away. Because in that time, if Paul was preaching, uh, you know, that, that, that Jesus could forgive sins and that, um, that you should give your life to him so that you can go to heaven, like that wouldn't have been subversive or, pr- or provocative or wouldn't have gotten thrown in prison. That, was, that would be so foreign to them in that sense, in that culture. But if he claims that Jesus is indeed the true king and lord of the universe, that is a problem. In fact, that's treason. It's the highest order of of crime in that culture. The line in Philippians chapter 2 verse 10, it says that in the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under earth. Every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ uh, is lord to the glory. That verse, that line would be brutal. You'd be done, okay? So what I'm not doing here, let me be real clear. I'm not trying to downplay justification by faith. I'm not trying to downplay um, a salvation or any of that. I'm, I'm just trying to understand what does Paul trying to communicate when he talks in this thing about the gospel of the king? What is the good news of the king? Now, lastly, uh, I think this is important for us to understand, and then we'll, we'll land the plane. Um, before we move into this alternative uh, colony that he's talking about, Paul saying, look, the church is a colony, not of Rome, but of heaven on earth. In the Greek, okay, this is, I'm going to nerd out real quick. In the Greek, the noun form is colony, and the verb form is actually the exact same word as live as citizens, okay? So when Paul uses the verb in 27, live as citizens of the gospel, and Paul uses the noun in chapter 3, verse 20, It says, but our citizenship is in heaven, which can be translated then to this is a colony of heaven. And I think this is one of the most misunderstood verses in the book of Philippians. Really, one of the most probably misunderstood verses in in the New Testament. Because Paul is not actually saying, hey, you belong somewhere else, and one day you will go there when you die. That's not what it means to be a citizen of heaven. What does it mean? What is he trying to communicate? He says, you have a citizenship, not just here, but of heaven. It's not something detached from the here and now. It's actually making the opposite point. 
See, the colony works the other way around. If you're a Roman citizen of Philippi, um, you don't dream about going to Rome. You dream about Philippi becoming Rome. And as a church, as follower of Jesus, you and I are called to bring heaven's culture to the region around Wichita, to bring heaven's beauty and art and justice and generosity and shalom and truth and the gospel and forgiveness and mercy and compassion. We are called to be a part of what God is doing here and now in Wichita, Kansas, or wherever God leads you. It's not just a, hey, you're a part of this future thing. No, no, no. You are a part, you're a citizen of heaven, which is coming to earth now. This is what we talked about a few weeks ago in Revelation, right? The new heaven and the new earth. The new heaven is arriving now, but it will also come when all things are made new in the future. It's the tension of the now, but the not yet. This is what it means to be a citizen of heaven. Now, we don't live in the Roman Empire, so it's hard for us to really get our minds around it. I know gas prices are really high. We have to boil our water, which is annoying. Um, you may not be thrilled with Joe Biden, but he's not a Caesar. We don't have a king. Um, we don't have a, a tyrant. Uh, or maybe you think that, I don't know. But the Son of God, um, in that idea, in that context, when, we, when they think about Caesar... Right? It was this absolute totalitarian, this absolute control. There was oppression in all of these things. And so when we think about that, like, what does it mean for us today, in today's world, to live as citizens of the gospel of the king? Because our world is a lot different than that world. Okay? What does it mean then for us to sort of take, our, take this knowledge that we now understand and bring it to where we are today? Let's go back to verse 27 because there are two metaphors that I think Paul gives us the answer. Paul goes on then in 27, whether I come and see you or only hear about you in my absence, meaning whether I make it out of prison alive or not, either way, I will know that you stand firm in one spirit, striving together as for the faith of the gospel, without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you. This is a sign to them. They will be destroyed, but that you will be saved in that by God. Now, Two images here. First, we have the image of Roman soldiers. Okay, this is military language. It's Paul saying, listen, the Philippians, you church, you think yourselves as soldiers, um, right, right to right, shoulder to shoulder, like in arms, side to side, interlocking shields. You're striving together for the sake of the faith. The gospel will not advance unless you do it together. Not of the empire, but of the gospel not to expand Rome, but to expand the kingdom of God, to partner and join with the Lord and to fight and work for the kingdom of God until it's spread everywhere. So think of yourselves as soldiers, not a single soldier, but as an army. Here's Paul's point. Living out the gospel happens in community. When we live it out we live this thing out. It happens not in isolation, but it happens in a community. It means not I'm just a soldier. It means you're in an army. We're hundreds, we're not thousands, and, and tens of thousands of men and women all throughout Wichita, throughout Kansas, throughout the United States, throughout the globe. It happens in community. And so the question I have, real practical tonight, do you feel like you have a healthy Christian community? And I know you're here tonight, and that's great. 
But do you find that you have people who you do missional community together with, that you're, you're, you're living life hoping to see this, this gospel expand into the world? Do you have that in your life? My buddy from Fuller uh, is a genius. He wrote a book called Missional Mapmaking. And one of the claims he made, he says, I have a lot of experience building missional uh, Christian communities, and usually it takes three years. It doesn't happen right away. It takes three years of building and cultivating until eventually we see this, this incredible thing start to happen. And so I share that with you just to, to encourage you. If, if you feel like you don't have that, don't give up. Keep at it. Come, if, you're, if you're just totally in isolation, don't have friends, don't have anyone, come talk to me. I'd love to get you connected. This church has so many smaller communities. We're a big church with a lot of small interwoven communities, and we'd love to get you plugged in in one of those. The second um, metaphor that Paul gives us is that of athletes. In verse 29, it says, For you have been granted to you on behalf of the king, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for him, since you were going through the same struggle you saw I had and now here still have. I could do a lot of breaking this down, but for the sake of time, um, all the language in the Greek is jam-packed with pictures from the arena. And specifically in that time, there was sort of like we have the Olympics. It was a very similar idea at the time. Philippi had a ton of athletes. Um, there was wrestling and running, and tens of thousands of people would come to watch. And he's saying, basically comparing that to this is how the gospel is lived out. It's like a race. It's like competing in these games. And the point I think he's making is living out the gospel is hard, not easy. Question to you is, would you agree with that? How many of us are in a real Christian community and know from experience that, yes, it's actually hard. It takes work. It takes commitment. It takes true discipline to see, um, not to receive God's gift of grace, and that's free, but to live out the gospel, to see it advance. That is hard. I think the best things in life are hard. They're not easy. Living out the gospel in this world comes with a cost. Or as Paul says, a struggle. Paul talks about suffering. We'll see this a lot in the book of Philippians. Uh, we're calling the series Enjoy and Sorrow because we see Paul speak to this quite a bit. Um, you know, suffering, people talk all the time about how Philippians is about joy in the middle of suffering. In fact, my first sermon I preached at Eastminster I was this young whippersnapper, 23 years old, and they gave me a rep. I think it was probably like the day after Christmas or something. Stan, or, no, it, was, it would have been Dave McKechnie back then. And uh, he gave me a chance to preach. I'm like, here we go. I'm going to hit a home run. But I definitely preached this, and now like 10 years later, I'm like, ah, I got it wrong. Anyway, so that's, that's close. It's really, really close, okay? Um, the problem is when you actually read Philippians and you get the context, it's not about just a generic suffering. Okay, I mean, and many of us experience that, whether it's cancer or unemployment or economic downturn or death or divorce or, or, or whatever, and not to downplay those things, those are legit suffering. And actually, the, when Paul says rejoice in the Lord always, that's for us, that's for you. And if you're struggling and, and dealing with suffering, that is an encouragement to you. But contextually, what Paul is talking about when he talks about this is joy in the middle of suffering for the gospel, right? While he's in prison, while he's experiencing suffering for the sake of the gospel, this is this idea that he is talking about. He's not sick. He's not out of money. 
but he's in prison because he claimed Jesus is Lord. And at one point, Paul says in chains, um, uh, in prison, when chains, no food, no water, he says, I have learned to be content. I've learned the secret to being content. Rejoice in the Lord always. You know, it's very counterintuitive that joy is not found in the easy life. I know for many of us who maybe we have money, we have success, um, you know better than anybody that joy is not found in vacation or early retirement or money in the bank and nothing wrong with any of that, sign me up. But joy is found first and foremost in Jesus when we live for Jesus and when we counterintuitively give our life away. This is why Jesus says, whoever wants to find his life has to let it go. Another translation says, has to lose it. And if you want to hold on tight, hold on to your wealth, your money, your life, your time, the things that you think are going to make you have ultimate joy, let it go. Counterintuitive. And it takes faith to actually believe that that joy is found more deeply in Jesus. Now the gospel of Paul that he's speaking here is that Jesus is Lord. And so my question to you is, do you really believe that? Do you believe that Jesus is Lord? Two questions to close. What gospel do you believe? Is the first question. Because the world is filled with gospels. Whether it's the gospel of Caesar, gospel of Jesus, gospel of empire, um, good news that more money, more stuff, more clothes, more Apple products equals joy. Um, or is it the gospel that if I could just have that one thing or if I could just meet that one person, um, if, whether it's the gospel of romance or sexuality or romantic completion or marriage or maybe you're married and if you're just like, if I just wasn't married, I don't feel that way. I love you, Betsy. But like, maybe you think like there was a world in which you could just have this one thing and that would be it. If you could just have it, you would have ultimate joy. The gospel of fame or popularity, of success, the promotion, the office, the new spot, the, the, there are all sorts of gospels that are being proclaimed to us all the time, that you need this or the other. My encouragement to you tonight is don't buy into the lies. It's imperial propaganda, and we are bombarded with it constantly. We see thousands of advertisements without even realizing it. And it's, it's, it's forming us in ways that we don't even realize. Don't buy into the lies. Believe the true gospel, that Jesus is king. Do you believe? What gospel do you believe? Secondly and lastly, what Lord do you worship? You know, worship is not a religious thing. It's a human thing. We all worship something. Um, whether it's Jesus, whether it's a political party, whether it's money or sex or power or, or your partner, your education or um, food, whatever it is, what Lord do you worship? Or put another way, what's the center of your life? What makes you get up in the morning? What, what makes you want to take, um, basically want to build your life on? What are the things that get you excited? What is the thing is it, is it Jesus? Is he Lord over your life? Is he your king? These are questions for us to wrestle with because I know in my head what I believe, but sometimes the way I live 
doesn't represent that. And so I need to be confronted by the Holy Spirit. I need to be reminded of when my priorities or my loves get misordered. And I need to repent and return to the never-ending grace and forgiveness that Jesus offers and so that I can proclaim the gospel that Jesus is indeed king. I'm excited about Philippians, and it's going to get even better. Um, So I hope you'll continue to join us as we go. This is an invitation not just to believe it in our heads, but to live it out in our being. And the invitation is that we would not just do this alone, but that we do it together. So let's pray. Fathers, we understand the, um, the depth of what you're trying to teach us, of what Paul was trying to communicate to you, um, this, this small church in a busy city, uh, a church of hope, a church of joy, a church that endured um, all kinds of difficult things, but in the end found true joy. I pray that that would be contagious to us, that we would be a community that wasn't just a community that uh, consumed that took in, but we'd be like the, the colony, the one that wanted to see heaven on earth um, take over our city, take over the people around us, and that you would use us to accomplish these things. We pray for not just a new knowledge, but for changed hearts, for renewal, and for hope. It's for your beautiful name I pray. Amen.